so today, we're going to get into the Word. I asked you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, uh, sorry, 22. And, uh, and really, I'm actually going to ask you to hold a finger there as we do some building up to looking at uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, maybe hold a finger there metaphorically or if you're, if you're a note taker uh, so that you can still take notes. I don't want you to feel beholden to holding a finger there. Uh, but today we're going to talk about something that is a tradition in our church. And it's actually been a tradition among believers or followers of Christ for generations. Today we're going to talk about something called communion. You might have also uh, heard this referred to as Eucharist, depending on your spiritual background or upbringing. Uh, you might have heard this referred to as the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be talking about this tradition. Now, this is a, this is a tradition that we practice here at Life Church, typically on the first Sunday of the month. There's no required timeline for practicing or engaging in communion. Jesus just encourages us. He says, as often as you do this, remember what I have done for you, or remember the purpose of communion. And so like I said, traditionally at Life Church, we do this on the first Sunday. You might have even grown up referring to this day of each month as Communion Sunday. Uh, and, and again, that's not something Jesus told us to call it. It was just so that we would remember on the first Sunday of the month, we're going to dedicate that entire month to Jesus and recommit our focus to him and pause and say thank you to him. And so normally, communion is just one element of our first, of our first Sunday of the month service. Today, though, I want us to slow down. Rather than what we traditionally would do is take a beat out of our service, we're going to slow down and make this the rest of our service today. And so the question that I want to wrestle with is not simply, are you ready to take communion, but do you know what communion is and why this is important? This is something that might feel like review for you if you've taken communion, studied scripture, if you know all about atonement and the old and new covenantal laws and the old and the new testament and what what all of that signifies. So this, for some of us, might feel like review, but can I tell you that even as I was writing the notes, I felt like God was giving me a fresh passion and commitment and love for the work that God has done for us so that as we come to communion, that it is meaningful. So even if this is new information for you, I'm excited that you're going to get to hear something new and hopefully learn something today. If this feels like a, a reviewer or a fresher, let it be exactly that, a refresher for you to freshen our understanding. So if I could pose a question for us, it would be, why do we take communion? And I would say that the answer begins by pointing at a universal problem. In Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2, uh, we see a highlight of the problem where God tells Moses, who was one of the early leaders of God's people, he says, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now that word holy, he uses it twice. He says, I'm holy, now you also need to be holy. That word holy means to be morally and spiritually excellent. The idea here is not just to be good or excellent or even great, but to be morally and spiritually perfect. Now you can probably already see the problem. You're sitting next to one of the problems. You are the problem. The problem is being perfect and holy as God is perfect and holy is impossible. You cannot do it in your own strength. And so, so the, the truth is, the reality is that we fail at holiness literally all the time. Some of you are just right now having to wrestle with the reality that you failed at holiness already today. 
I mean, some of us, the drive here wasn't great. And some of us, when we leave the parking lot, someone will cut us off as we're trying to get out onto Challenger Way and we'll say or think some things. Please don't be less than perfectly holy when you go to lunch. Christians are notoriously less than perfectly holy when we uh, engage with our servers at restaurants on Sundays. Side note, make Sunday the day that people are excited for the Christians to go out to lunch. It's currently not. If, if you ever worked in food service, you know what I'm talking about. Because we're not perfect. We're not holy. But scripture defines all of this failure to be perfect and holy in all of the different ways that it happens in our lives. It defines it as sin. Now, I'm not going to go way into what sin is, but essentially sin can be summed up in two different forms of sin. There's sins of commission, which is when you commit an act that fails to be perfectly holy, like when you accidentally murder your neighbor. Um, a sin of omission is when you find out that your neighbor was murdered, you know who did it, and you don't tell anyone. Right? So a sin of commission is something you do that goes against God's perfect standard of being righteous and holy. And a sin of omission is when you fail to do the thing that would be up to God's standard of being perfect and holy. So basically that covers the gamut, doesn't it? That covers everything and most things that you've done since you were born. The Apostle Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. That's found in Romans 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 23. He says that when you sin, whether it's by commission or omission, you're actually earning a paycheck. And that paycheck doesn't come in the form of money. It comes in the form of death. So this was, this was not a new idea that Paul came up with, by the way. When God established the first covenant with mankind, which we see in the Old Testament, the result of failing to honor, obey, and be like God was death. God created a covenant. And the Old Testament covenant system, which God had, there were other people besides the covenant that God made with mankind. There were other people who would make covenant. And the covenant uh, responsibility was we're going to keep my I'm going to keep my end of the bargain you're going to keep your end of the bargain and whichever one of us fails there's going to be an agreed upon punishment for not living up to the bargain and they would agree on the terms and when God set the terms of the covenant with mankind the terms of the 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 result of not living up to your end of the covenant was death and here's what we know is that God is perfectly holy and since the standard of the covenant has always been be perfectly holy as God is perfectly holy, we can know God has never and never will fail to live up to that standard. Right? But we, all the time. And so the result, you might even say the punishment for not living up to the standard, is death. Now, not necessarily immediate physical death but certainly eternal death. Eternal death does not simply mean that you cease to exist, but that a person's soul would continue on forever experiencing unending separation from God, which whatever you think about your relationship with God today, unending separation from God is the definition of hell. And many people get stuck right here. This is where a lot of us get stuck. Believing that this right here is evidence of God being cruel and unloving. And I understand. Because death seems like a really harsh punishment. Especially when the standard is something that is impossible for us to keep. And yet, 
we would agree that all offenses should have consequences. If you agree with our legal system in this country, or in any nation, you, if you agree with even the idea of a moral code, you would understand and agree with the idea that offense has consequence. And the severity of offense, the severity of the, of the punishment based on the offense should always depend on who you've offended. I've shared an illustration here before. If you punch me in the face, I could probably press charges. If you punch a police officer in the face, that's jail time. If you show, throw a shoe at the President of the United States of America, that's defined as an act of terrorism, and you'll go away to prison for a long, long time. And that's not just a made-up story. That's a historical fact. So depending, I'm not the president, I'm not a police officer, I'm just a guy, you could probably get away with a good, good old punch to my face. If you feel like that's necessary, at least buy me a cup of coffee first so we can talk about it. <laughs> Maybe I can talk you out of it. But the severity of the punishment should increase based on the severity of the person you've offended. And, and we would agree with that even if you cannot stand the person who's the president or who was the last president or who was the president that got a shoe thrown at his face or, or whoever the next president is. You understand the office is what carries the weight, right? Now, we're not talking about a president. We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the king of kings. We're talking about the God of all power and all authority. And so when we commit an offense against this God, the punishment will match the authority offended. Even if you think that's too harsh, it's actually not our judgment to make because we're not the one who created the universe. So when you create a universe, you get to set the standard. Nope. None of us have done that. So since sin is an offense against the ultimate authority, who is God, we owe the ultimate consequence, which is death. But, and sin keeps us trapped in a cycle that leads us to death. And since the only way to clear our debt is to be perfectly holy as God is holy, we're, we've got a problem. And the problem is we're in trouble and in need of help. That help comes in the form of God himself who said, since the standard for breaking the covenant is death. Somebody on the human side of this covenant needs to die because humans broke the covenant. God said, my plan is that I will become a human and die in the place of all humans so that a human will take on the death penalty so that this plan and the, the, so that the, the system, the requirement of death, the wages of, of sin, which is death, will be able to go somewhere and be paid for. So I want to talk to you about how that works. We'll begin with remembering that Jesus is this person that I'm talking about, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus comes in John 3.16, we see it says, For God so loved the world this way that he gave his only son. That's Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus says that salvation is giving, given to those who believe in him. But what exactly is it that we need to believe? And we're still trying to answer the question, what does any of this have to do with taking communion in a few minutes? 
Well, John also, he wrote John 3, 16, but he also wrote another book called 1 John. And in the first chapter of that, John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, again, he's talking about Jesus, then we have fellowship with one another. And the listen to this, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a phenomenally powerful verse. But in order to fully understand this, as we're asking the question, what exactly is it we need to believe about Jesus, we need to talk a little bit about blood and maybe sheep and eventually Jesus. So before Jesus came to save the world, God set up this covenant with the Jewish people. I was telling you a little bit about that covenant. I won't go into a ton of detail. We could do an entire teaching series just on the old covenant. We could do multiple teaching series. But Jesus in that old covenant, he he chose a limited group of people. We know them as the Jewish people. He chose a limited group of people to demonstrate a limited relationship. The original covenant that he set up with them had a system in place for their sins to be covered. And that system we read from Leviticus a few minutes ago. Let's read from Leviticus again in chapter 17. It says, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you. Part of this covenant was that they would take blood, pour it on the altar, and that blood would be purification for them, for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. It said it would make them right with the Lord. In other words, I know that you're not holy and perfect like I am holy, But do this process of sacrifice and using the blood, and it will make you right with the Lord. It says here, it is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So the Jewish people understood that the power of life was in blood. And if innocent innocent blood was shed, then that blood could cover or pay for, or the uh, uh, more theological term would be atone for a person's sins. So atonement is a word which means your sins are paid for. Rather than you receiving now the wages of sin, which is death, well, that debt has been paid for. It's good news. But as the people of Israel would take a spotless lamb... They would sacrifice that spotless lamb. That lamb would die in their place, which would cover people. It would cover the cost of death for people's sins. The the problem was that even though that sacrificial lamb and its blood would represent salvation for those people, the problem was that it was temporary. Blood had to be shed again regularly annually, and sometimes even more than annually, depending on the nature of the sin or the nature, nature of the sacrifice in order to cover for that sin. Just like this covenant was set up with a limited group of people, it was also designed to be a limited system. The Old Testament system was actually designed to point to our need for something eternal rather than having something temporary. So I want, I want to be clear. We don't read the Old Testament and see that as God's salvation attempt 1.0, and then he, he saw that it wasn't working, and so he sent Jesus. 
Like he finally figured it out. God, I'm glad that you graduated to finally being smart enough to figure out how to save us. What we actually find was that this was God's intention all along. The Old Testament covenant was created specifically to cover us temporarily and to point us to, to the need of something greater. And consider this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. This was God's plan all along. Do you realize that before you were even born, God had a plan? Before our generation was even a thought, God had a plan. Before Jesus ever came in the flesh, God's plan was that he was going to come in the flesh. When he set up the first covenant, which was designed to not be strong enough, This was God's plan all along because he knew he was strong enough. The old covenant was designed to cover sin temporarily. So he knew that at some point we would need a more powerful covenant. Paul explains this in detail here. By the way, are you learning some things right now? Is this helpful to you? In Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, Paul talks about this. The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshipers would have had clean consciences. Instead, once was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices, year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? The answer is not enough. So when Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he said, Since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, you have clothed me with a body that I might offer myself instead. This is what Jesus came into the world and said to the Father who established the original covenant. And then you jump down to verse 9, and it says, Then Jesus said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice to, move, to remove sin, which he was eligible to do because he came and lived as a human being, and humans were the ones who owed the debt, and then as a human being he never sinned, so he was the spotless lamb. By God's will, it says he abolishes animal sacrifices and, pla- and replaces the entire system with a new covenant. By God's will, we have been purified and made holy. What was our original problem? Be holy as I am holy, and we couldn't do it. By God's will, we have been purified and made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah. 
So Jesus is the reason we're able to say that we are saved from sin once and for all. Even saved from the idea of groveling or dwelling in our sin and and being overly aware of what dirty, rotten sinners we are. The old covenant was designed to, to show us, man, you are a terrible person at being perfect and holy. And the new covenant is designed to point to Jesus and say, you get to be as he is in the world. Covered by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus sees you, a a blood-covered believer, he doesn't see all of your sins. He sees a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Jesus became the spotless lamb because he never sinned and he paid the price forever and he was able to pay a price that lasted forever because he is the eternal God. This is that payment called atonement for our sin. So by the blood of the lamb, our sins are atoned for or paid for or removed from the ledger against us or as scripture says, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west as far as they possibly could be removed. Okay, so we've done some theological work. Let's get back to our question. Which is inspired by John 3.16. What exactly do we believe that gives us eternal life? We believe that Jesus is the perfectly holy Lamb of God. Who died to save us from our sins and who rose again on the third day to give us the free gift of eternal life with God. This is the new covenant. This is the covenant that Jesus established. But let's not, let's not lose track of the conversation we're having. The real question we're asking today is, why do we take communion? Well, theologically, we take communion because of the new blood covenant with Jesus. When we take communion, we are recognizing the atoning work of the blood and body of Christ. And as a spiritual discipline, as a practice that we engage as a tradition here in our church, and knowing that in other churches they don't do it on the first Sunday of the month, some do it a little bit less than we do, and many churches do it every single Sunday. And then there's many people who do it in their homes, in the middle of their spiritual gatherings with their church community. But as a spiritual discipline, we practice and take communion because Jesus established this as a regular practice which was commemorating his saving work. We take communion to honor and celebrate the new covenant. We take communion to root us in community with the body of Christ. We take communion to maintain awareness and humility under the weight of Jesus' death that paid for our sin and his resurrection, which secured eternal life for us. This is why we take communion. We practice communion the way that Jesus led us to do it, kind of. Sorry, I just mean there that when we take communion in a moment, it's not going to be a full-blown multi-course dinner like it was when Jesus did it in that moment. (laughs) We have done, actually, some things called a a Passover Seder. Uh, We've done that, actually. Larry, one of our church council members, had had helped us to lead some of those for a number of years. Uh, where it's, a, it's more of a meal. I have a dream in my heart that one day we'll just set tables in this room and we'll do a full multi-course meal that'll be a Passover together and we'll celebrate the, the institution of this meal in our church as an annual uh, tradition and practice. But today, we won't take a full meal, 
But we will celebrate, first with bread, representing the body of Christ broken for us, and then with drink, representing the shed blood of Christ. You can see it instituted in this way. And remember, about a month ago, I asked you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. <laughs> you thought I forgot. It says here, when the hour came, this is in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on, I will not drink the fruit from the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And this is the verse that will be up on the screen behind me. It says, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, pause there, notice after supper. It was a full meal later that he did the second part of this communion practice. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was poured out for you. So I, I, today I want to lead you in this same practice. But before we do that, I want, I want to see if we could take a few more minutes and consider the people who were at this table. Because not only do I want us to root us historically and theologically in the understanding of what communion is and why it is significant for us to take it, I think it's also important for us to find the ways that we are very much like the people who are at this communion table. So listen, in fact, to the way that Luke talks about the people who are around this table. Continuing in Luke 22, in verse 21, Jesus says, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. We know if we've studied scripture, if we've been to any church services around the holidays, we know that this man he's referring to is Judas. Judas has made a deal to betray Jesus' physical life to those who are trying to kill him for 30 pieces of silver. We know that that was equivalent of a month's wages. The hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began arguing among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute rose among them about who should be considered the greatest. That doesn't sound like the modern church at all. As we continue, Jesus eventually looks at, at Simon, and he says, if you jump down all the way to verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you even know me. Luke points to at least three kinds of people who were at the Lord's table, and I just want to share a few thoughts about them quickly before we take communion together. The first kind of person that Luke points to at the Lord's table, taking communion with Jesus himself. 
Number one is those who would betray for a price. Now, certainly none of us are Judas, okay? Judas was a unique man in all of human history. He, he was a unique individual in human history. He was the only one who walked personally with Jesus and then sold his life for a month wa- month's wages to betray Jesus unto death. That is not your journey. We are not Judas, but we are like him when we sell our loyalty to Jesus for the price of momentary satisfaction or temporary comfort. And yet, Jesus knowing full well that Judas would betray, allowed him to sit at the table for the entire meal. Think about the people who have betrayed you. Now text them and invite them to your house for dinner. I think that this points us to the welcoming that Jesus' love extends to us, to even when we are finding our souls in its most darkened state by sin. Jesus extends this welcome to show us that while he is no partner to sin, he is the friend of every sinner. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not even afraid of the ways that you will betray his loyalty. So as we come to the Lord's table, we come as people who have also in our own ways betrayed Jesus in the name of comfort, and we find that Jesus extends his hand to us in welcome. So at the table, with Jesus, there are those who would betray for a price, and there are those who would debate for power and position. A dispute broke out among which one of us would be the one to betray him. And then we started debating about which one of us would be considered the greatest. They launched into a debate. If Facebook was around in those days. I mean, the subtweets that would have been sent out, right? They're just so inspired to get to serve Jesus in such incredible ways, I'm deeply honored that he chose me to be chief among his disciples. Send. And Thomas just goes, doubt it. Okay, parents in the room are really going to relate to this, but I wonder if you've ever had like a serious attempt at having a, like a real serious conversation, only to have the people who you're talking to not understand what you're trying to say at all and like cracking jokes. If you've ever had a, a serious conversation with a junior hire, you know exactly what I mean, right? You're like, you, go, you pick your kids up from Life Kids today or from the outlet, and you take them out to lunch, and I promise at least one of you will have this experience. Hey, tell me what you learned about I want to talk to you about this encounter I had with Jesus during worship and communion. Like, let's talk about what Jesus is doing. And your kid is going to be like, can we go see the new Batman movie? Right? Which, I mean, yeah, let's go. But that's not the conversation we're trying to have right now. This is Jesus right now. He's trying to talk about literal, I mean, eternal life and death kind of stuff. And his varsity squad is out here trying to have a debate about power and betrayal. I'm not going to be the one who's going to betray you. It's definitely Judas. Did you see the way Judas did that thing the other day? No, it's going to be Peter. He's wild all the time. 
It's not going to be me, right? And speaking of how it's not going to be me who betrays him, I think I'm the captain of this team. So they're debating about it. I mean, this is like the righteous facepalm moment. Jesus is just sitting at the table like, guys, fellas, not the conversation I'm trying to have right now. Like Jesus does give his people power and authority. He absolutely does, but not the kind that the disciples were thinking about. Not the kind that turns into a competition. And Jesus, his response makes this clear. We skipped over it a few minutes ago, but let me read to you how he responds. In verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles. Now, I, I don't picture stoic Jesus in this moment. Pick, picture exasperated Jesus. Picture parent of a junior higher Jesus, right? The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. Guys, it's not supposed to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest and whoever leads like the one serving. And I know I said that as if it was like a, a funny moment, but could you imagine Jesus who knows he's about to die for these dudes? I almost wonder if maybe it's not exasperated dad of a junior higher Jesus, but weeping Jesus. Father, why do they still not understand? When will they get it? Why are they so caught up in the wrong pursuit? Jesus shuts down our pursuit of power. He's saying great, greatness is not seen in titles. It's seen in serving other people. The people that Jesus was trying to position to launch his church were missing the point. This is a problem that continues to affect, infect and affect the church today, right? As leaders use church hierarchy to abuse power and therefore abuse people, as followers of Jesus think that Jesus wants us to join a political party. Can I just tell you that historically, if you study the movement of God in the world, that every single time that God's people have tied his work to political power and tried to uh, lord power over other human beings, that we have not helped, we've actually limited God's attempt to work in and through our lives. We are not meant to have political power and if you think you want it, remember, be holy and perfect as God is holy and perfect. You kind of stink. Like, I don't know that any of us should be trusted with political power. And then Jesus says, that's not even the kingdom that I invited you to be in. I'm not interested in whether or not you rule the governments of the world. I rule the world, Jesus says. Now, in the middle of that, participate in your local government and vote for the people that God tells you to vote for. And if the person who attends this church happens to vote for somebody else that you didn't vote for, that doesn't inherently make them a bad Christian. Stop being so arrogant. <laughs> okay. Please, move forward. Okay. Look, the, the, the pursuit of human power looks a little bit like looking at the power and the authority that Jesus tried to give us as sons and daughters of the Most High God and saying, that wasn't good enough for me. I also need to be in charge of people. 
Jesus says, the great people in my kingdom are the servants. And yet, what's incredible is that Jesus invites these power-hungry people to his table. He doubles down and says, you're the guys I want to be in charge of launching the church. So as we come to the Lord's table, we come as people who have missed the point of Jesus' kingdom. We come as people who have sought God for personal gain. And people who have considered ourselves to be better than others. And yet we find Jesus inviting us to come and sit under his authority, welcomed as sons and daughters. So there's people at the table who would betray for a price and who would debate for power and position. And there's people at the table who would deny under pressure. Jesus warns Peter in advance that he was going to deny Jesus, and Peter found himself surrounding by, surrounded by people only a few hours later who ask him, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he denies it three times, exactly like Jesus said that he would. Peter's denial of Jesus is rooted in something we would call the fear of man. He was so afraid of being rejected by the people around him that he rejected Jesus. And this, by the way, is an incredibly powerful thing to reflect on. We would ask ourselves, what are the places that we have pretended to be one of the crowd so that we wouldn't stand out by claiming to be a Jesus follower? Now, I'll confess to you. I'll go, I'll go first. I confess that over the last three years, I have found myself struggling to use the word Christian in public while talking about myself, even in sermons. Because over the last three years, the word Christian has kind of become a dirty word. Because those of us who would claim this name have not all represented the person that it represents very well. For all kinds of reasons. I confess that I am also among the people who fail to represent Jesus well. So I'm not casting judgment. I'm saying that in my being embarrassed, I have actually stopped using a title that I think God has given us that is beautiful. So I can relate to Peter today. I mean, you might have even noticed that I've, I've not used the term Christian in sermons a lot. Even in this sermon, I think that was the first time I used it. And I'll, I'll use words like disciple or follower or student of Jesus. All of this has been an attempt in my own life to differentiate ourselves or differentiate people who I consider to be true and humble Christians from those that I have deemed to be bad because of their bad behavior. There's a word that is a, a kind of a sin that gets associated with that, which is called judgment. Now, I, I want to be clear, there's some really bad behavior out there, which does not represent Jesus Christ. And in a pursuit and a desire to guard my own heart against being judgmental. And in a desire to take the next step to further, uh, to, to not deny that I am one of them. I need to repent of my sin. I need to come back to the table. And I invite you to join me at the table. But there's another interesting note here that I think that is really, really important is that we, we understand that Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him, but pay attention to the way that Peter responds. Peter, the denier, ironically denies the denial. 
Not me, Lord. I would never. I'll go to prison. I'll even die for you, with you. Let's go. Come on. Right? This is Peter. Peter's ultimate issue, though, was that fear of man led him to deny Christ. But his root issue was arrogance, which led him to refuse to self-examine. When Jesus warned Peter of his denial that it was lurking in his heart, he denied that it was even possible. No, never, not me. And Peter actually becomes like a guy that in Luke 18, just a couple of days ago, Jesus was telling a story about a religious man who goes up to the temple and he prays and he sees a tax collector and he goes, God, thank you that I'm so amazing and not like this tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector is over here beating his chest going, God, I'm a horrible person. Just forgive me. I need your grace. I'm lost without you. And Jesus says, it was this man, the humble one who's actually close to the kingdom. This guy goes away not having known God at all. And Peter, by refusing to hear God's warning to look inside and see the fear of man that would lead to denial inside his own heart, he produces denial, which was a lie, from arrogance. He refuses to look inside. And yet, Jesus doesn't even deny Peter a place at the table. Later on, we see Jesus restoring Peter Not at a table, but around a fire on the side of some water where he makes him breakfast. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He asks him three different times. Each time restoring each of his denial and building on an idea that you're no longer going to be Peter who denies and Peter who fears and Peter who refuses to look inward. But you're going to be a Peter who loves me and who lets me do my work in you and who will love the world the way I love the world. As we come to the Lord's table, we come as people who can fall into the trap of thinking that we are better than we are or judging thinking that we are better than others. We come as people who value belonging to people more than we value belonging to Jesus. And we come even as people who deny Christ even as people who deny that we would ever deny. And we find Jesus absolutely refusing to deny us a place at his table. At the table where Jesus serves communion, there are those who would betray for a price. There are those who will debate for power and position. And there are those who would deny under pressure. We are those people at the table. We are utterly broken and completely welcomed. We eat and drink together, and as we do, we become fully present to Jesus with our faith and with our folly. I want to invite you as we move to taking communion now to make this a moment of confession. I want to invite you to be honest about all of the parts of yourself that you're bringing to the table. I want to invite you to make this a moment of giving or recommitting your heart in faith to Jesus. I want to invite you to make this a moment of receiving love and grace and forgiveness from Jesus. And just like Sarah just brought this to me, if you don't already have one of these little cups today, this is the element that we're using to take communion together. 
And if you don't have one, just simply put a hand up in, in above your head, and Sarah will come and deliver one of those to you now. Thank you, Sarah. If you're joining us online and you're wondering, how can I take communion? We want to be very careful here to always say that we believe that it is most important that the condition of your heart is right before the Lord when you take communion. The elements, I believe that they matter, but I think that they matter less than the condition of your heart. And so we invite you to take communion with us from home um, as well. And um, as we do that, I want to just make one final invitation, as Jesus has made lots of invitations to us today to come to the table. But I I feel compelled to make an invitation that would remind you of John 3.16. This is how God so loved the world that he would give his only son, that whoever believes in him would not experience death, but eternal life. We would be saved. Communion is a practice among Christians, followers of the way of Jesus. We do this to remember the ways that Jesus has saved us, to honor his death, to celebrate the gift of life. And so at Life Church, everyone is welcome to take communion with us. But we're very clear to say that if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, that this becomes a meaningless practice. This is simply snack time. Or it's deeply meaningful life-changingly meaningful. And if you walked into this room today and you would say, I'm among those who would be disqualified because of what you just said, because I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I have good news for you. This is the good news. Jesus says those who believe, not those who go through a discipleship program, not those who join and are members of a local church, but those who believe are eligible. Those who believe the blood and the body are applied to you based on your belief. Notice, not based on your behavior. You don't perform your way into being eligible to take communion. It's communion that reminds us that Jesus has already done all of the work that is needed so that we can live under the covenant and live a different way serving him as our king. And so if you came into this place today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you're realizing now that you would like and that you desperately need one, let's make today the day. This is not difficult work. Jesus did the hard part. I'm going to invite everybody out loud to pray these words, repeating after me, so that if there's anybody in this room who would say, I'm making this my prayer of salvation today, that you wouldn't feel excluded or isolated or pointed at in any way, but that we simply would pray this. Pray these words after me, and in fact, let's all close our eyes and we pray together. And if you've done this 100,000 times, make this a prayer of even recommitting your faith to Jesus in a fresh way today. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again so you can offer me eternal life in you. I place my faith and my trust in you. I commit to follow you the rest of my days. Help me to live with you and for you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. If you just prayed those words, I'm going to lead you through this practice of communion in just a moment. But if you just prayed those words for the first time, we, we just absolutely celebrate that with you, whether you're in this room or, or online. And, and so that we can celebrate this with you, I just want to tell you, if that was you, we have these two prayer walls right there. You see these walls with the, the lights on if you're in the room. We're going to have leaders at the back of those. In fact, Elizabeth is going to go to that one over there to my left, and Marcus is going to go to that one over there to my right. And after service, all I need you to do is just go and tell somebody, hey, something just happened in my life. I just prayed that prayer with meaning, and I believe I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just took communion. It was awesome. You can say it in whatever tone and, and awesomeness that you want to say that in, but we just want to celebrate. We want to walk with you and encourage you and pray with you as you continue to walk with Jesus. Now, it is absolutely my honor to get to welcome you with me to come to the Lord's table as we take communion together. If you haven't already, you can open up these elements and we'll take the bread together uh, first, which is that first piece. Forgive me while I crinkle into the microphone to open this. By the way, while I'm opening this, there's another thing that's on my heart that I want to say to you. I had a student at um, uh, the Bible college where I teach that um, was w there was there was a question that came up about the elements of communion and and uh, there were some students who were in our Pentecostal tradition and some other kind of non-liturgical, uh, traditionally liturgical high church traditions, and then there's some Catholics in the school as well. And so I'm aware that there's kind of a different blend of faith traditions all in the same room together. And, and so we got to have a conversation about what did we learn in 2020 when the church went online? For the record, the church never closed. It just went online. Um, and so, so we had a conversation about that, and I asked our students to please be very, very aware and considerate of the faith crisis that our Catholic brothers and sisters and our, and our brothers and sisters in Christ in high church or more liturgical traditional churches, they went through a faith crisis because they weren't able to have the communion elements uh, instituted for them, the, the Eucharist practice, as has been their tradition. And because that is a beautiful, rich tradition, they didn't know what to do. And so the church had to figure out an answer to that. And so there's two things that I said to my students and I want to say to you today as well that we can learn from that. Number one, let's be very, very sensitive to the reality that other people do communion differently than the way we do it. The point is the heart, right? But number two, I think that we can learn from our high church traditional liturgical brothers and sisters, in them having a faith crisis when they couldn't go to church and have communion given to them by their priest, you know what we should have learned? We should have learned to take communion seriously like they do. Because sometimes, I'll admit, this is a first Sunday of the month kind of a tradition. We just kind of do it and then we move on with our service. And I just get a sense that the Lord is saying, no, you're missing the point. This is a thing. In fact, it's such a thing to Jesus, it was a whole meal. So I just want to invite you right now to carry some of the weight of brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us for generations, understanding the weight of the practice that we are about to walk through together. This is not an empty tradition. This is an encounter with the Jesus who died and rose again. So, Jesus, we take the bread and we say thank you. Would you even just right where you are sitting say thank you to Jesus 
the body of Jesus broken for you so that your brokenness would find healing in Jesus. I'm going to pray this prayer and I'm going to give you a moment just in silence or whenever you're ready to eat the bread. And when you're done eating, before we move on to the cup, I just want to invite you in your own words again to say thank you to Jesus. So Jesus, again, I come before you with my friends and family today and I say, I believe, we believe that you are the son of God. We believe that you lived free from sin and that your body was broken for us. We receive the healing that you offer to us, healing our heart, soul, mind, and body, and healing our relationship first with you and then making it possible to have a healed relationship with others. As we take and eat the bread, we say thank you that you were broken so that we don't need to be. Amen. now the cup, which here for our purposes today is grape juice. It was wine in that moment. Um, this drink represents the blood of Jesus shed for you so that your sin would find forgiveness and your soul find life in Jesus. Again, same practice. Would you take a moment and say thank you to Jesus in your own words for the blood of Jesus shed for you. If there's suddenly been some need to make confession of sin, this would be a good moment for you to say, Jesus, I realize I need to confess this sin before you. I'm not asking you to yell it out, say it even loud enough for your neighbor to hear, but between you and Jesus, make confession. And Jesus, we come before you today and we say that we believe that you are the spotless lamb. We believe your blood was shed for us to forgive us of our sins, not for a moment or a season, but forever. We receive your forgiveness and we thank you. Help us, Jesus, to live worthy of the love that you have given to us. Amen. When you're ready, drink and say thank you again. The crinkling of communion cups has become one of my favorite noises. As Pastor Mark comes to wrap up our service, I want to pray this blessing over you. Lord, thank you for this honor to dig into your word today. And I pray this over my church family, my friends, our guests, our new friends, and those who are watching this even later online that we have no idea who they are. May you feel welcomed by Jesus every day. May you find grace and forgiveness as you receive his invitation to his table. 
May you experience joy and peace as you enjoy life with Jesus through every season. May the life you receive at the table with Jesus overflow from your life to be a blessing to others in his name. May you be richly, deeply, and eternally blessed. And may you be a blessing as you invite others to the table with Jesus as well. Amen.